Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. We are an ACC church based on the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia. We'd love for you to join us on any given Sunday. In the meantime, we hope this message blesses you. There's a famous story in the book of Luke that for centuries has been known as the parable of the prodigal son. It's a story about a son who who takes his father's inheritance and goes and wastes it and then returns to a forgiving father. But it's actually a mistake for us to think that it's actually the story of just one son. It's actually the tale of two sons, a younger brother and an older brother. And Jesus tells this story with both brothers in order that we might compare the two of them. In fact, to go a step further, it's actually when we compare the older brother and the younger brother in this story that we actually are led to the radical message that Jesus is actually leading us to. And so this is what the Bible says in Luke chapter 15 and verse 11. Then he, talking about Jesus, said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine, and would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I'll arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. And when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Verse 25. Now his oldest son was in the field and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called out to the servants and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fattened calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Look, these many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandments at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who's devoured your livelihood with harlots, you've killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. And all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. One of the challenges in reading the Bible is crossing the historical distance between the culture that we're familiar with, our 21st century culture, and and translating across that historical distance to those who are hearing this for the very first time. Because of course, when Jesus told this story, he was telling it in a particular context. And as he was telling it in that context and in that culture, there were things that were immediately apparent in the story that Jesus told. And so one of the challenges in in Bible teaching is to cross that historical distance and be able to hear what they heard as Jesus told the story. And so this morning, what I want to be able to do is to take us on that journey to hear what they heard when Jesus told the story of these two lost sons. 
The first thing you've got to understand about this story is the shocking nature of the son's request. The son says, give me my share of the estate. The original hearers would have been amazed at the audacity of the son's claim. It's almost a detail that's lost on us, but it wouldn't have been lost in the first century. That there was nothing wrong with an expectation by this younger son to share in the wealth. There were two sons, and therefore the eldest son would have received two-thirds of the family estate, and the younger brother would have received a third of the estate, but that division only occurred once the father died. This son is making a request while the dad is still alive. As one historian put it, to ask for the inheritance while the father is still alive is the same as wishing him dead. He's saying, Dad, I want your stuff, but I don't really want you. His relationship with his father has actually been a means to an end. And so he asked while his dad's still alive, give me what's mine. What's even more shocking than the audacity of the request is actually the response of the father. You've got to remember that the first century is an intensely patriarchal society, as parts of the Middle East still are today. That respect for one's elders was of primary importance. And so the traditional response would have been for the father to discipline his son, to maybe even drive him out of the family home with physical violence. But the father doesn't do that in Jesus' story. Instead, the Bible says that he divided his property between them. The word in the Greek for property is the word bios. It means life. Biology is the study of life. And so literally what the scripture is saying is that the father divided his life between them. So why does the story say that? Because the father's estate was actually his land. His wealth was in his land. And so for the father to be able to give a third of his net worth to his son, he would have had to have sold some of his land holdings. Well, in the first century, especially in that day, people's very identity was bound in their land. That's why it was such a significant thing for Israel to be out of the promised land, that there has always been this journey back to the land because their identity is tied to it. And so if you lost your land, you lost yourself. If you lost part of your land, then you lost part of your status in the community. And so the younger brother is asking the father literally to tear his life apart, to tear his status and standing in the community apart. And what's amazing is that the father actually does it. Jesus' listeners have never seen a Middle Eastern patriarch behave in this way. That the father would endure tremendous loss of honor and pain. But it doesn't diminish his love for his son. He maintains his affection and he bears the agony anyway. And so this is the younger brother's plan. That he will take this inheritance and he'll go away to a far country and he'll use it. And what actually happens is he squanders it. And eventually he finds himself living amongst pigs and feeding the pigs. And he finds himself desiring what the pigs have. You see, sin is always fun for a time. But eventually there comes this bony demonic finger that pokes you in the chest and says, I know what you've done and now it's time to pay. And that's exactly what happened. There was a time where the way he was living seemed right to him, where it seemed fun to him, but eventually sin serves the bill and it comes at a price that none of us can pay. And so he comes up with a plan. I'm going to go home to my dad. I'm going to apologize. I'm going to make this right. Notice firstly with his plan that, that he decides he's going to go home. That home is actually not primarily a place. It's actually a relationship where you're accepted. But why is it that so many people who come to church describe it as coming home? 
that there's nothing familiar necessarily about the building or even about the people or, or especially about the songs, especially if it's your first time in church in forever. But, but, but there is something familiar about it because home actually describes something for us as humans that, that isn't so much primarily about a physical location, but it is about a sense. It is about a relationship where you're accepted. And notice the second part of his plan, that he says, I'll, I'll go to my father and I'll say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Please make me like one of your hired men. Notice he says hired man and not slave. There's a difference between the two. Servants worked on the estate, but they also lived there and they didn't own anything. But, but hired men were like tradesmen who lived in the local villages and earned a wage on the property. Why does the son say, make me like one of your hired men and not like a servant? But because he realizes that an apology will not be enough. He realizes he's going to need to earn something because he's got something to pay back here. And so apology is not sufficient. He needs to make restitution. And so he says, make me an apprentice to one of your hired men so that I can begin to pay my debt back to you. What he's really saying is, I know that saying sorry is not enough. And so this was his plan. And so he begins to rehearse his speech. He's got a long journey ahead of him. And so you can imagine him, right, walking along that road all the way back, thinking to himself, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Please make me like one of your hired men. Dad, I've got to pay this back. And as he's rehearsing the speech, Jesus tells us in the story that while he's still a long way off, the father who's always been watching and always been waiting sees him coming from a long way away and he runs to meet his son. Again, this is one of those details that's kind of lost on us in the 21st century, but it's not lost on those that were hearing Jesus tell this story for the first time. Because in Middle Eastern culture, men never ran. Children would run and youths would run and sometimes even women would run, but it was seen as uncouth for a man to grab the hem of his garment, lift it up, expose his legs and run. And so men by nature did not run in community. In fact, certainly not men of great stature or standing in the community, certainly not patriarchs of land owning. And so the son's totally taken by surprise. And, and so he tries to, to deliver his speech, but his father ignores it, that the father goes and gets the best robe and puts it on him, which is the unmistakable sign of restored standing in the family. In other words, what the father is trying to communicate to the son is I'm not gonna wait until you've paid off your debt. I'm not gonna wait until you've begged and you've groveled. I'm not gonna wait until you've pleaded no, 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 you're not going to earn your way back into this family. I'm simply going to take you back. I'll cover your nakedness, your poverty, and your rags with the office of my honor. Not only does he give him a robe and sandals, but he also gives him a ring, which is also significant because in the first century, you didn't do business by signing documents with a lawyer, but you did so by using the family crest, the ring, to be able to seal those agreements. And so really what the ring represents is the father doesn't just accept him back, but he actually gives him the full status of sonship. It's not simply that he forgives him, it's that he restores him back into complete and total right standing. He didn't earn it. He hasn't deserved it. It's an act of absolute grace. And so the message that Jesus is leading us to is really quite remarkable, isn't it? That God's love and God's forgiveness can pardon and restore any and every kind of sin and wrongdoing. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done. If you would just turn and say yes to Jesus, you'll find a God who is able to forgive and to restore, not simply to wipe away the past, but restore all things and make them new. 
There's no evil that the Father's house cannot pardon and cover. There's no sin that can match the Father's grace. It's the grace. It's the lavish prodigal God. That word prodigal doesn't mean to be wayward. What it actually means is to be a spendthrift. It means to spend and spend and spend until you have nothing left. And so in the story, it's not so much that the son was the prodigal, but actually that the father was the prodigal because there was no expense that he would spare in order to make things right with his son. And so some people are like the younger son, that they want the things that the father provides, but they don't necessarily want the father. They want the things that God can give them just so long as they don't have to deal with God himself. They want their independence. They want to be able to live their own way, and they believe that doing so will actually bring them happiness. And some of them, one day, will decide to come home. And because the Father in the parable represents God, we're being told no less than nothing can separate you from God. That no matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done, if you come, you'll find a God that loves you and cares for you and wants to forgive you. You know, the truth is for all of us, we're all like the younger son in some respect. That, that all of us, when we first come to God, say, God, I'm not worthy. I, I want to earn my way back into your good graces. I, I'm going to try really hard. I, I'm going to pull my socks up and God will have none of it. That he gives us the full rights as sons and daughters. That he confers sonship on us, even though we've done nothing to deserve it. Isn't that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21? He says, for he, talking about God, made him, talking about Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That that is the great exchange. That at the point of the cross, that at the moment of salvation for you and I, that we get to exchange our shame for his righteousness. We get to exchange our brokenness for his power. That, that, that all the things that we can't be, Jesus became in order that we might be made right with God. And so you don't earn God's righteousness, you simply receive it. We're made right not because we are good, but because Jesus has been good to us. And the truth is, for those of us who've been around church, that's typically where we end the Bible lesson. But we imagine that Jesus tells this story so that evangelists will have something to use in their altar calls for the next 2,000 years. But actually, it's at this moment that Jesus introduces a fourth lost thing. Jesus in Luke 15 is answering a question that's being posed by the Pharisees and, and he starts by telling the story of a lost sheep, then a lost coin, and then a lost son. And right here at the end of Luke 15, he introduces a fourth lost thing, a lost older brother. And to understand why Jesus does that, you've got to understand who Jesus is telling the story to. This is what the scripture says in Luke 15 verse one. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying. We think of this parable that Jesus tells in the most sentimental terms. We imagine that this is like one of those hallmark moments where everybody is reaching for the Kleenex. Because it's a beautiful story. But actually, for those who are hearing this story, they're not reaching for Kleenex. They're not being moved by the story. They're completely offended by what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus' purpose in telling this parable is not to just give us a moving story. No, actually what he's trying to tell us is that everything you've ever heard and everything you've ever thought about how to approach God is actually wrong. Jesus continues in Luke 15 verse 25. This is what it says. It says, Now his oldest son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. 
And so he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fattened calf. Well, the older brother hears this and he's completely furious. Like he's really mad. In fact, he refuses to go in and in a public show of defiance decides to stay outside. Essentially, he's saying, I refuse to be a part of any family that my younger brother is a part of. And so he forces the father to have to leave the celebration and come out and plead with him. Note how abrasive the older son is to the dad. Luke 15, verse 29, Jesus says, So he answered and said to his father, Look, these many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandments at any time. And you, you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, you de- who's devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. Notice how demeaning he is to his father. He doesn't say father. He doesn't say dad. He says, look here. Let me tell you some things. He completely disowns his brother. He doesn't even call him his brother. He says, this son of yours. He is trying to distance himself as much as possible. And in distancing himself from his brother, he's actually alienating himself from his dad. And so he refuses to to even recognize his younger brother. In fact, he's the only person in the story who tells us how the younger brother lost his, his wealth. He tells us that, that actually it's because he lived with prostitutes. Isn't it interesting how the older brother is the one who points out the sin the younger brother was in? No one else did. He was all too aware. It's funny how we do that, don't we? Where we compare ourselves among ourselves and we like to point out what's different about the other person. Yeah. I've found that, that Elise loves vanilla slice. I don't really care for vanilla slice. I like sticky date pudding. It's funny though, if I'm eating vanilla slice or sticky date pudding, my body doesn't care if it's vanilla slice or sticky date pudding. It will, it will count the calories and add the weight anyway. And yet I can sit back and say, I can't believe, I can't believe that she's eating vanilla slice. <laughs> well, I'm hoeing into sticky date pudding. And yet this is exactly what the older brother does. He looks down his nose at the younger brother and is all too happy to point out the kind of sin he's involved in. Meanwhile, there's probably some things that he's involved in, but he's less able to point those out. He's particularly angry about this whole situation because of what it cost. That's what he's really upset about. He's upset about the fattened calf, which is, again, one of those things that's like, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Why is he upset that it's a barbecue? But actually, if you were in the first century, you know exactly why he's upset. And that's because most, in that society, most meals didn't include meat because meat was very expensive. In fact, of all the delicacies, the fattened calf was amongst the most expensive. And so if a fattened calf was killed, it was generally reserved for a really special occasion. It would be for the kind of occasion that you invite the whole village to. It would be for the kind of occasion like a wedding or something of the rarest of occasions. And so why is he so upset? Well, this is the greatest day in the father's life. And the eldest son can see that, but he actually doesn't care. What does he care about? He cares about the father's things, but he doesn't really care about the father. He cares about the estate. He cares about the father's things, but he doesn't really care about the father's heart. He says to his father, you've never even given me a goat for a party, and now you've gone and given the fattened calf to my brother. And so when the father goes out and pleads with the other son, he says, son, you were always with me, and all that I have is yours, and that is literally true. 
that when the younger brother took his third and wasted it, that everything else that remains in the estate does actually and literally belong to the older brother. And so why is he so upset? Because he's doing the sums in his mind and he's realizing this is all coming out of my pocket. And all he can see is his portion diminishing. And so he He's adding it all up and he's thinking, I've worked hard and, 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 I, and I've earned this, but my brother, he's done absolutely nothing to deserve this. And so where's the justice in that? He says to his dad, I, I've never disobeyed you. I deserve to be consulted about this. And so how will the father respond to the elder brother's open rebellion? Again, he, he might have disowned his son right there on the spot and yet instead he responds with tenderness. Essentially, he says, my son, despite how you're treating me, I still want you at the feast. I'm not going to disown your younger brother, and I'm not going to disown you either. Come on, swallow your pride and come and join us. And at this moment, Jesus' listeners are on the edge of their seat. Because how's the story going to be resolved? This is at the climax of the tension in the story. Will the family be restored? Will, will the brothers be reconciled? Will the older brother go into the party because he's been softened by the father's offer? And just right there, Jesus ends the story. He doesn't tell us anything more. He ends the story with this dramatic inconclusion. But what's Jesus trying to get across? He's trying to get across that there are two boys and one is bad and the other is good, but both are alienated from the father. This is not the story of one lost son. It's the story of two lost sons. They both want the father's things, but they just don't want the father. They're both using the father to get the things they really want, which is the wealth and status. And one's been doing it by being very, very bad. And the other's been doing it by being very, very good. And the two lifestyles are actually more alike than they appear. Think about this. What did the youngest son want and how did he get it? Well, he was trying to get control by leaving and disobeying. Think about this. What did the eldest son want? And how did he go about getting it? Again, he was trying to get control, but by staying and obeying. That actually their hearts were the same. That each wanted to be in a position where they could tell the father what to do. They just went about doing it by completely different means. That neither son loved the father for himself. They loved the father because of what he represented in being able to give them. And so Jesus is pointing out, you can rebel by breaking the rules, but you can equally rebel by keeping the rules as well. What made Jesus's parable astonishing is that what he was actually doing is he was redefining sin for them. That sin isn't simply failing to keep the rules. You can keep all the rules and still be wrong because you think you have rights. That God owes you because you've earned it, because you deserve this. And so the elder brother feels that he has rights. Jesus is pointing out that actually beneath sharply different behavior is actually the exact same motivation. That Jesus shows that a man who's violated virtually nothing on the list can actually be just as lost as the guy who spent all that he had with harlots. Why? Because sin is not simply breaking the rules. Sin is more than that. Sin is making yourself the Savior. And so Jesus doesn't divide the world into good and bad like we do. Jesus says everyone's lost and everyone's loved and everyone's invited. And by contrast, the elder brother divides the world into two, the right and the wrong. G.K. Chesterton, 
um, posed, a question was posed in a newspaper and G.K. Chesterton wrote to the editorial with the following response. The question was, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote, dear sirs, I am yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That's the attitude of somebody who's understood the message of Jesus, that there's two kinds of lostness. That's why Jesus puts the older brother in the parable, that you can escape God as much through immorality and irreligion as you can through morality and religion. That there are a lot of Christians with an older brother type of heart. That if you and I, as Christians, in our hearts say, you know, well, I try very hard. And, and, and I'm obedient to what God says in his word. And, and you know, I go to church and I serve and, and I give and I do what I'm asked. And therefore, God, you owe it to me. You owe it to me to answer my prayers and to give me a relatively good life and to take me to heaven when I die. Then Jesus may be your model and he may be your example and he may even be your boss. But I tell you what, he's not. He's not your savior. Because somehow we've tricked ourselves into thinking that if we do these things, then God ought to save us. Elder brothers obey to get things from God. And here's how you can tell when you've crossed that line. Older brothers obey to get things from God, and when those things aren't forthcoming, they get very angry. They get very angry with God because this is not the way it's supposed to go because I don't deserve this. As if somehow we're able to save ourselves or earn our way into God's good graces. But the grace of God is such that there's nothing we could do to be able to make God love us more, and there's nothing we could do to make God love us less. Isn't that what the Scripture says? In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that Jesus died for us not once we had gotten it right, not once we had prettied ourselves up, not once we had started attending church, but Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. That means there's nothing we could do to make God love us more. He died for us while we were sinners. But it also means equally there's nothing we could do to make God love us less. He died for us while we were still in sin. But Christians who make Jesus their savior, they obey simply to get God, just to resemble him, just to love him, just to know him, just to delight in him. And it's subtle, isn't it? It's subtle in our Christian walk how how easy it is to cross that line and how important it is that we remain listening to God, how important it is that we don't grow cold, we don't grow tired actually just even of being in God's word and letting him shape us. I think one of the most harrowing things that Jesus said in the gospels is where he said, you know what? Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven. He said on that day, people will say, but we cast out demons in your name. And we did this for you, Jesus. And we did that. And and we built great churches and, and we preached really good sermons and people got saved under our ministries. And Jesus will say, yeah, yeah, but I never knew you. Why? Because it's possible to go through the motions and be so, so in the motions that nothing real is actually transpiring. And so Christians who make Jesus the Savior, rather than trying to earn it themselves, they obey simply to get God, just to resemble Him, just to love Him, just to know Him, just to actually delight in Him. And suddenly you realize who these two sons represent. That both sons in the story are wrong. But the story doesn't end on the same note for both of them. 
Jesus is telling these stories to tax collectors and sinners, younger brother types, and to Pharisees and teachers of the law, older brother types. He's helping them to be able to see that actually you can both be wrong. And though you're both wrong, it doesn't end on the same note. That at the end of Jesus' story, he leaves the older brother outside the party. That the lover of prostitutes is saved, but the morally upright man is still lost. And you can almost hear, can't you? In the crowd that gathered to hear Jesus tell this story, you can almost hear the religious people gasp. It gets more shocking. Why does the older brother not go in? Why doesn't he celebrate with the father? He actually tells us, he says, because I never disobeyed you. Think about this. The older brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness. He's losing the father's love because of it. It's not his sins that are his problem. It's his moral pride. Why? Because both brothers are equally wrong, but not both scenarios are equally dangerous. The younger brother knows that he's not right with God. He knows that he needs to return home. He knows that he's estranged and alienated from the father. But the, younger brother, but the older brother is actually blind to his true condition. The older brother's response is, 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 I do all these things. I do all these things for you. And yet Jesus says it doesn't matter. And what was radical about Jesus' message is no one had taught that before. We're talking about a culture where the Pharisees and teachers of the law were the ones to instruct people how they were to come to God. That they would put little boxes with the scriptures on their foreheads in order for it to seep in in some way. That they, had not only, they were not only keeping the scriptures, they were overkeeping the scriptures. That they'd come up and started inventing all these different rules to apply to the scriptures in order to be able to really keep them. And so when the scripture says, maintain the Sabbath, the Pharisees would tell people, um, in order to be able to maintain the Sabbath, here's a list of rules we're going to give you. And so on the Sabbath, a woman should not look into a mirror because if she looks into a mirror and she sees a gray hair, she may be tempted to pluck it out. And in plucking the hair out, she will have considered doing work and therefore she will have broken the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, you shouldn't spit on the ground because if you spit on the ground, it will raise the dust and the raising of the dust will be considered work. Therefore, don't spit on the Sabbath. And they come up with hundreds and hundreds of these rules. And Jesus is helping them to realize that actually you think you're making yourself right because you're not looking into mirrors to pluck gray hairs and spit in the ground to raise the dust. You, you, you think you're making yourself right with all of that? No. That, that actually these two brothers actually are representing the two groups of people who are there. What I find fascinating is why would a storyteller as amazing as Jesus finish the story without a conclusion? Maybe there's a reason for that. He doesn't just want us to compare the two brothers, but he also wants us to see ourselves in the story. That we need something that's missing in our lives. That ultimately Jesus leaves the story open-ended because he wants us to see that the real story here is, is how do we make our way home? Whether we're the older brother who's outside the party or whether we're the younger brother who's come to the realization that we're so far from our father's house, how do we make our way home? Well, Jesus is showing us that there's actually three things we need. Firstly, we need the initiating love of God. Notice for both brothers, it's the father who goes out. The father runs to meet the son. And upon hearing that the elder brother is outside the party, he leaves what he's doing and he goes out and pleads with him. It's the father who initiates for both the older and the younger brother. 
Isn't that what the scripture says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19? That we love God precisely because he first loved us. That actually there was no way for us to be able to make ourselves right with God. And so God, knowing that there was no way for us to make our way to him, he made his way to us. And so how do we come home? Well, firstly, we need the initiating love of God. But secondly, we need to learn to repent from something besides just our sins. Timothy Keller put it like this, Christians not only need to repent of their sins, but they also need to repent for every reason they ever did anything right. That's how you transfer your trust from yourself to Jesus as your Savior. You know, as I was praying about what to preach, I would love to preach something on breakthrough. I would have loved to have preached something on faith. I love preaching on those topics. The last time I was here, I preached on something like that. At least wrote a book that's a lot like that. But you know, I found in my own life that oftentimes the greatest turnarounds and breakthroughs don't happen there. They actually are precipitated by something happening here. That that actually there is an art to repentance that is almost being lost in the church. Because when you remove the idea of sin, you don't have any reason to repent. That that almost for the modern church, we've completely lost that word. That we don't want to talk about sin because that's an uncomfortable thing. So we don't use sin. We just sort of say like wrongdoings or, you know, little mistakes that you're like, well, mistooks and things that, you know, you should, no, I should have done this. And, and we almost have lost that word. And so when you lose the word sin, you also lose the, the need to be able to repent for sin at the exact same time. And, and in the middle of that loss of language, at the same time, we've become so very grace-orientated. And in the process I fear that if we lose repentance, we actually end up becoming more gracious than God. I've been in meetings and led things where it's been like, we just need to show grace, we just need to show grace, we just need to show grace. And in doing so, we actually are becoming more gracious than God. Because God's mercy is for every single person. Make no mistake, God's mercy is for every single person. But there is a big difference between mercy and grace. This isn't in my notes, but let me just go there anyway. There's a massive difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is you not getting the thing you deserved. But grace is different to mercy. Because whilst mercy is you not getting what you deserve, grace is you getting the very thing you never deserved. Think about it like this. If I was playing cricket in the backyard with my son and and he hit the ball over the fence and he broke the neighbor's window, it would be merciful of my neighbor when we go over and say, hey, look, we're really sorry Um, broke the window, we'll fix it, it's our fault, it's our mistake, we'll we'll fix the window. It would be merciful of my neighbor to say, hey, do you know what, you've broken the window, but that's okay, you don't need to pay for it, I will pay for it. That would be merciful, because we deserve to pay for the window we've broken, but we're not getting the thing we deserve, therefore that's merciful. But grace is more than mercy. Grace is you getting the thing you never deserved. If we hit the ball over the fence and it broke the window and we went over and said, hey, we're really sorry, we broke the window. And, and the neighbor said, you know what, it's totally fine. You don't need to pay for it. I will pay for it. Hey, and by the way, I want to give you a new car. I'll be like, is there anything else you want me to break in your house? Is there anything else in here that you want broken? Why? It's merciful for me not to get what I deserve, but it's gracious for me to get the very thing I never deserved. And so God's mercy, make no mistake, is for every single person without exception. It's the mercy of God that affords us the time in order to be able to repent. And upon repentance, God gives us his grace, which is the very thing we never deserved. 
It's that full transfer of sonship. It's that righteousness of Christ that we haven't earned or deserved. It's that empowerment to do what the truth of God's word demands of us to be able to do. That's the grace of God. But when we give grace without repentance, we become more gracious than God. If God gave grace without repentance, then every person is saved and every person is going to heaven. And while God's mercy is for every person, God's grace follows repentance. And so how do we come home? Well, firstly, we need the initiating love of God. But but secondly, we need to learn to repent. And not just to repent for the things that we've done wrong, but to repent for all the things we've ever put ourselves in the position of Savior for. And here's the final thing as the worship team comes back now. Thirdly, we need to be grateful for what it costs to bring us home. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. That in Luke chapter 15, Jesus actually tells three stories in a row. And he tells them because the Pharisees were saying, why does Jesus hang around with tax collectors and sinners? And so in response to their question, Jesus tells them these three stories. He tells them the parable of the lost sheep. That the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes in search of the one. And he tells the parable of the lost coin where the woman turns her house upside down searching for the lost coin. And then he tells the parable of the lost son. And the shepherd goes after the sheep and the woman turns her house upside down to go after the coin. But in the parable of the lost son, no one goes after the lost son. Why? Because Jesus is trying to get us to ask the question, who should have gone after the younger brother? Whose responsibility was it? Well, everybody who's listening to Jesus tell the story in the first century knows precisely whose responsibility it was. It was the older brother's responsibility. Why was the older brother always given a double portion of the inheritance? Precisely so that he would have the means to be able to make the family a family. He was given the extra resource, not because he was more favored, but but actually because it fell on the eldest son to have the responsibility of making the family a family. And so if something happened in the future, if a brother or someone was to die and he would have to take responsibility for, for his brother's wife and children, he would have the means to be able to make that possible. And so those who are listening know exactly whose responsibility it was. It was the older brother's responsibility. And so a good older brother would have said to his father, my younger brother is lost and he's gone off and his life is in ruins. Please, dad, let me go and search for him and bring him home. Even if it costs me great expense, let me do this to keep our family together. We need a true older brother who though it cost him greatly would would come and find us and take us home. And there is a true and better older brother. His name is Jesus. Jesus puts a bad older brother in the story in order that we might long for a better one. That there is an older brother who loved and obeyed the father completely. He was spotless and sinless in every way. There is an older brother who came from heaven to earth and loved God with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his mind and with all of his strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. And he earned everything. He earned the robe and he earned the ring. And at the cross, Jesus gets stripped. He doesn't get a royal robe. He gets stripped and he doesn't get the fattened calf. He gets vinegar and he doesn't get a ring of honor. He gets a crown of thorns. And we are clothed with righteousness because he was stripped in shame. And we receive the ring and the robe because he gave those things up for us. Isn't that what Paul says? Philippians chapter 2, that he... He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, and yet He laid aside in order that we might receive 
And so Jesus puts a bad older brother in the story to make us long for a good one. We don't just need an older brother who would go to the next town to bring us home. We need the kind of older brother who would cross heaven to earth to come and find us and restore us back into right relationship. We don't need an older brother who'd be willing to use the expense account in his wallet. No, no, we need the kind of older brother who would spare no expense, even his own life, to make us right with the Father. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay tuned for new messages weekly. You can keep updated on what's happening in the life of King's Church by following us on social media at King's Church GC. Be blessed.